I was thinking before, during the week, that uh, it would be good to probably give the message I'm going to give before communion, but we have all those children that are just anxious to get to Victory for Kids classes, so I'm kind of giving you a message after the communion. But I want to just start by reminding us again of the, the reading that was in verse 28 of chapter 11 that I just read. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I'm going to reiterate this a couple of different times, but I think as you read it in context, it's not an examination to necessarily remove you from participating. It's an examination to better prepare you for participating and receiving communion. What does it mean to examine yourself? Well, if I examine myself, I turn out righteous just about every time. How about you? Amen. So obviously, it's not my standard that's important. It's God's standard. And the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to examine our hearts. And the Holy Spirit lives in us and knows all there is to know about us. And He will reveal those things in our lives that that God wants us to deal with in whatever way that may be for each one of us. So we need to examine ourselves. And a thought that... I've been wrestling with, and I shared with Casey this week as I was praying about what to share and how to share it. You know, Pastor Bob and I, and and probably everybody else that teaches, have oftentimes reminded us that, you know what, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our sins are forgiven. Amen? We're on the same page. Our past sins, they're forgiven. Present sins, forgiven. Future sins, Forgiven. So what do I have to examine myself for? Seems like a waste of time, doesn't it? Now, for most of us, when we look at that, we think, well, this is kind of a a no-brainer. We know that we're not perfect. But the reality is, in 1 John, you'll start reading, and and he's talking about some things, the theologies that were present way back then, and, and they might go by different names today, but what we think is obvious isn't as obvious to a lot of people. As a matter of fact, there's some really false teaching out there about this. This examining ourselves and what happens when we're born again. There's the antinomians back in that day. They were called antinomians. What did that mean? Well, these were people who believed that all I had to do was believe and therefore I was not accountable to any moral law whatsoever. In other words, as long as I believe, I can pretty well do whatever I want. Okay? See any of that out there today? Man, people live like, I can do whatever I want. Do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yes. Then what are you doing married, not married and living together and having sex? What are you doing doing this, that, or the other thing? Well, they examine themselves according to their standard and they turn out just fine. Then there's the other group that he was dealing with, the perfectionism. And there it's like, once we get saved, it's like there's surgery that takes place and the sin nature is cut out and thrown away, and there we are, we're good. We're perfect. How many of you are perfect? If if you're perfect, come forward, we'll cast out that lying spirit. We know we're not perfect. And when you look at those two ways of thinking, it's hard to imagine that there are ministries and people out there teaching both of those positions, even yet today. Because of grace, we can do whatever we want because we're saved. Or, 
we're saved, and now we have to be held to this standard of perfection. And every time you sin, you lose your salvation. So you need to get, I mean, man, I'd have to get saved so many times in a day. We'd be wearing out the cross. And to us, it just seems ridiculous, because it is ridiculous, but there's a lot of deception out there. So I want to just back up and look at the elements of communion just briefly, and then we're going to look at examining ourselves. The elements of communion, the bread, we pray over the bread. And a few weeks, or probably months ago now, Glenn had a, pray, a piece of unleavened bread that he brought and showed everybody. And I just happened to have one left, one half piece left, very thin. Notice the scorch marks, the lines on there. And if you were up here close, you could see there's little holes in the whole thing. And this would have been typical of the bread that they would have used during the Passover meal. Unleavened bread, bread with no yeast in it. I think that's code for saying that really tastes bad if you've tasted it. But when you look at it, the yeast in the Bible oftentimes is a picture of sin. So when the Passover was established, even on that night of the Passover, they were to make unleavened bread. A couple of reasons. One, they were supposed to be ready to go at a moment's notice, and yeast takes time to rise. But the unleavened bread is also a picture. No yeast. Sinless offering, a sinless sacrifice. The bread, as it's made, you can see the scorch marks are kind of like stripes. The stripes that Jesus endured in his body. It's such a wonderful picture of the Passover meal when Jesus took from the entire Passover meal and that little bit that we read this morning about the cup and the bread. And the holes, the piercings, as a picture for us, of Christ's body taking the stripes by his body being pierced, the bread symbolic for us of Jesus and a sacrifice without yeast, without sin. He was a sinless sacrifice, a sacrifice who was beaten, whipped, the stripes by his stripes we are healed. His body was pierced for our transgressions. In the original Passover, it was all set there as a picture of the future. And then there's the cup, the cup of wine. Now, the Passover meal, the, the cedar meal, the Passover meal, actually involved more than one cup. There was actually four different cups as they would go through the whole formality of the Passover meal. The first cup was called the cup of sanctification. Each cup had a name. The first one was the cup of sanctification. And it was based on the statement that God had made, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Part of the definition of sanctification is that taking and setting apart. So the cup of sanctification was a reminder for the Jewish people that God had promised that he was going to take them out from under the burden, set them apart from the slavery of Egypt. The second cup was called the cup of judgment or the cup of deliverance. And it was based on another statement of God that simply was this, I will deliver you from slavery to them, to the Egyptians. I will deliver you. So as they're going through this Passover meal, the cup of sanctification, the promise that he would set them apart, bring them out, the cup of judgment or deliverance, I will take you and deliver you from the slavery. And then the third cup was called the cup of redemption. And the cup of redemption was based on the statement of God and says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will redeem you. I will bring you back. You will be my people. 
He was taking them back, the process of getting them back to the promised land, the cup of redemption. And then the fourth cup was the cup of praise or the cup of restoration. And this was based on God's statement that I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Bringing them back to that right place with Him. So when we look at communion in the Scripture that I read in Corinthians 11, when it talks about the cup, it's the cup of redemption. And when you think about that, and that cup of redemption, it takes on such more significance. When Jesus is taking that cup, if they were to in the, the Passover meal, and that cup was, here's the cup of redemption, and all of a sudden now He changes the meeting meaning of it. He, he, he modernizes it, so to speak, to Himself, prophetically. This cup is the new covenant. It's the new covenant of My blood that was to redeem mankind from the power of sin and from condemnation. The cup of redemption. And every time you drink of this, do it in remembrance of Me. We can get in a religious habit of receiving communion, whether you do it once a month, or you do it every week, or you do it three times a week. We can forget why we're doing it. God didn't want it to be a religious exercise. He wants it to be a continual reminder of what He did for us in redeeming us, giving His body, shedding His blood, that we might be redeemed. It was the blood that confirmed the new covenant. You know, it's interesting, and I'm not going to go down this path today, but, you know, in the Old Testament, really... They were all saved by faith. It was all by grace. It wasn't because they followed any rules, regulations, or laws, or ceremony. It didn't save anybody. Doesn't that sound a lot like a new covenant? Really, really, it was ratified at the cross. But it's always been by grace through faith. Always. All, all that religious stuff did, all that law stuff, all it did was point out the fact that they were a sinner and then you did all the ceremonial stuff to really kind of cover it up. And, and God's really saying, I'm not going to look at it right now. I'm not going to judge you. Do it again next week. Do it again next year. Do it for a hundred years. And for us, when He went to the cross, He did it once for all time and said it's finished. And that's why we say our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. The new covenant, the cup of redemption. In Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, Jeremiah the prophet is talking about this new covenant. And it says this, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sins I will remember no more. So when Jesus is telling His disciples, this cup, this is the new covenant of My blood, He's talking about this new covenant that Jeremiah was prophesying about. It's a covenant about an inner transformation, an inner change. It's a new nature. We are born again. 
We are new creation. It's an inner change that takes place. When you look at that scripture in Jeremiah 31, if you look at verse 34, it points out to us there, it says, I will, I will <clears throat> forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. From a judicial perspective, God is the judge. He had declared that one sin, the sin of Adam, one sin condemns us. So every single one of us at one time were condemned. Condemned to what? Death, physical death, and spiritual death. Eternal separation from God. And God in the new covenant of His blood is saying, I'm judiciously, as the judge, they're gone. Anybody tries to bring evidence, there is no evidence. None to be used against me. Wouldn't you love to go to a judge if you happen to have made a mistake? And he looks at the, looks at the attorneys and says, well, where's the evidence? And your attorney says, and his name happens to be Jesus, there is none. There's no evidence. That's what it means, part of the new covenant. There's no evidence against you or I. Judiciously, we are not condemned. We have been declared completely, totally innocent. Innocent. Boy, the devil hates that truth. That's why he keeps whispering the lie that you're not good enough, that you're condemned, that you're not worthy, you're not, not doing it right. That's all garbage from the pit. You've been totally forgiven. The new covenant. And then in the new covenant, he says, he's going to put God's word and his will right in us. Right in us. Part of the new covenant. You look at verse 33. He said there, I will put my law within them and on, their, and on their heart I will write it. We know the will of God because it's in us. It just has a hard time getting from our spirit to our brain. Our flesh gets in the way. We say, boy, I wish I knew the will of God. It's written on our hearts. The Word of God, it's written on our hearts. We need to study and know the Word of God. So we realize when we hear something, that still small voice, we, that's the Word of God. And it's in there. The will of God, it's there. And then he says part of the new covenant is also the new relationship with God. And with people, for that matter. In verse 33, he said, I will be their God and they will be my people. Can you imagine, and you should imagine, standing there and there's God. There He is in all His glory, if we could only see that. And He looked at you and looked at our congregation. He says, these are my people. This is it. These are my people. Man, wouldn't that do something for your spirit? Wouldn't that excite you, exhilarate you? Wouldn't it humble you? Wouldn't it make you want to do anything and everything you could possibly do to please and glorify and honor that God who looks at you and says, you are my people. When the rest of the world looks at you, they're seeing me. I'm in you. My word is in you. My will is in you. Wow. That's not only awesome, it's awful responsibility. Isn't that something? That, that should be the primary foundational motivation for the way we live our lives. He lives in us. Jesus died 
to redeem us. God has established relationship with us just as it was promised hundreds and hundreds of years before by the prophet Jeremiah. However, and whenever you hear the word however, it's kind of like hearing the word but. It's like, uh uh-oh, what's coming next? Well, what's coming next is many of us live as if there was never an inner transformation. Many of us live as if there was not a cleansing for sin. Many of us live like there's no word and no will of God in us, in our hearts. And many of us live as if there isn't a close relationship with God. And when I say us, I don't mean just us here in this room. I mean us, the church, the body of Christ. You know, we're called to be His witnesses. We're called to be His ambassadors. We're called to be those who would go out into the world and the world would look at us and say, wow, that is beautiful. That is attractive. What is it? It's Jesus. That's who we're called to be. But we fall so short. And I believe that's one of the reasons that the verse in chapter 11 that I read, verse 28, says, but let a man examine himself. Examine ourselves. Then let us eat of the bread. Let let us eat of the drink of the cup. Notice it doesn't say, let every man examine himself to see if he's good enough to eat of the cup and drink of the bre- drink of the cup or eat of the bread. Let's let's examine and see. Do I qualify? You'll never qualify. We aren't good enough. That's why the standard isn't our standard when we're examining ourselves. It's Holy Spirit, search my heart. What doesn't measure up to the standard of God in my life? Reveal it to me. And I guarantee you, if He reveals it to you, He will give you the grace to respond and He'll give you the grace to do the right thing. Isn't that neat? You know, I, I, I tell people, or I used to tell my kids when they, when they were younger, I still try, I used to tell them to go do something. But I didn't necessarily equip them, prepare them, give them the tools to do what I wanted. That really made it tough. But with God, it's different than that. When we allow the Holy Spirit to examine ourselves, He will reveal it. He'll give us the tools. He'll give us all we need by grace to do what it is that will purify, cleanse us, and get us in the right place. So I come back again. Why do we need to examine ourselves if our sins are forgiven? And this is a topic that I couldn't possibly cover in one message or teaching. But I want to just share a few things first in preparation for what's probably coming in the next few weeks. We need to understand in Romans 3.23 and in Galatians 3.22, Romans 3.23 tells us we, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, we're all toast. It, it's, no one is righteous. None. And in Galatians uh, 3.22, it words it a little differently. It says the Scripture has shut up all men under sin. Meaning the Scripture is pointing out that we're all toast. We've all sinned. We're all condemned. The condition before we were born again, by our nature, we were sinners. That was who we were. That was our state of being. Okay? We were powerless, according to the Word, to resist sin. It was a state of being. 
And then when we become Christians, when we become Christians, how many of us became sinless? None of us, right. We're still, we still sin. But there's a difference. There's a great big difference. When, when it was who we were, we were a sinner, we were condemned. As a Christian, when we sin, you might like this word, it's a transgression. It does not change the reality of who I am in Christ. We don't lose our salvation every time we commit a sin. We don't. So I think it might help us to, to separate a judicial thing, a judicial judgment, going before the judge and being determined innocent or condemned. Because that's a done deal in the life of a Christian. We are His sons and daughters. Period. But I sinned this morning. Am I still His son? Yes. Are you still His daughter? Yes. The judge, the judicial aspect is dealt with. But as a son or daughter, and those of us that have children or our parents or grandparents, we understand that our kids mess up. Our kids disobey. Our kids do something that's wrong. What do we do? Are they removed from the family and are, no, are they no longer your sons and daughters? No, of course not. They're still my son. They're still my daughter. So therefore, we just let it slide. I hope you don't. We're to train up a child in the way that he should go. God is our Heavenly Father. We're His children. He will train us up in the way that we should go. Why must we examine ourselves and why should we confess our sins? If He's already forgiven them, why do I need to confess them? I don't need to confess them to become saved. That's a done deal. I am already saved. But I need to confess them to my Heavenly Father as His child, who He is sanctifying. Who He is causing by the Holy Spirit living in us to become more like Christ. And believe it or not, God disciplines His children. Matter of fact, in that section of Scripture, in Corinthians chapter 11, I didn't read this far, but in verse 32 it says, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Now that word judge there is not the judgment of condemnation because the verse says very clearly, we are judged when we are, but when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that way we may not be condemned along with the world. God disciplines His children. Just like we discipline our children. Why did we discipline our children? We want them to get back into becoming what we know and believe and hope they can be. And we do it because we love them. Don't kid yourself. You never, if you never discipline your children, that's not, a, that's not love. That's not love. God disciplines His kids too. And he tells us, examine yourselves. And when you examine yourself, confess it. I want, maybe this will help, I want Father's forgiveness to restore communion and joy. I don't need His forgiveness so I'm born again. I'm already His child. 
My kids, when they come to me and say, gee, Dad, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I think they did that. (laughs) Right? You weren't listening, were you? (laughs) You need to listen. Go ahead and say, forgive me, Dad. Go ahead. Perfect. I forgive you, son. I didn't forgive him so he could be my son again. Of course not. But I don't want there to be any barrier between me and my children. I don't want there to be anything that would ruin the kind of joy and the kind of peace and the kind of communion that I want to have with my kids. And that's how it is with God. When I'm confessing my sins, I'm not going to Him and and begging Him, please take me back into the family. Please, please, please. No. What I'm saying is, Dad, I am so sorry. I confess what I did is wrong. I want to be back in right relationship with you. I don't want anything between you and me. Will you forgive me? And he goes, of course, son. The reality is, it's already forgiven. But it restores that communion. restores that joy. That's why we need to examine ourselves on a regular basis, not just when we receive communion. On a regular basis. I am so far from my notes. How are you doing back there, Mary? Or who's running? Yeah. You know, the Bible tells us that our old nature, that sin nature, that state of being that we were, and if you're not saved, that's the state of being you are still in. And your sin and my sin, believe it or not, there is a difference. The sin of the unbeliever is sin unto condemnation. The sin of a child of God is a transgression that starting to do damage to my intimacy with the Father. Now, let me ask you, hypothetically, which is worse? The sin of an unbeliever or the sin of a child of God? Now, I can make the argument, and you probably could too, that sin of the unbeliever, he's lost, he's going to hell, that's way worse. But let me... Let me package it a little differently my son does something wrong takes my favorite tool and loses it now he'll tell you I misplaced it but let's just say he did and he comes to me and says dad I'm sorry I took your tool without asking I don't know where it is I've lost it you took my tool without asking Now you've lost it. I could call that sin against me. That's okay. I forgive you. But then the neighbor kid came over and he got in my shop and he stole my tools, my favorite tool, and he took it. How is my response going to be different between the two? Which one actually hurts me more as the father? I'm pretty ticked at my neighbor kid. And I'm going to throw the judicial law at him if I can. Because he deserves to be punished for his sin. But oh man, my kid, my son, all I want is us to be in a perfect relationship. All I want is us to be able to commune. I want there to be joy and peace between me and my son, me and my daughter. I think in that sense, the sins 
of a believer, a child of God that go unconfessed probably break the Father's heart way more than we can understand. He loves us so much that He died on a cross for us. He took those lashes with that whip of nine tails, His flesh being ripped off His body. He went to the cross. He was spit on, humiliated publicly, and then nailed to a tree, a cross, and died the most horrible death imaginable because He loves us. And all He wants us to do is love Him back and to demonstrate that love for Him by being obedient to His Word. Not because... He's a perfectionist. But because he knows when we're obedient to his word, we will be blessed. Obedience brings great blessing. And this is his heart. He wants his children to be in right relationship with with him continually. Just like I think all of us that are natural parents would want to be in right relationship. And take it even out of the parent thing. With brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to be in right relationship. If someone has something against us, we're to go to them and confess. Confess your sins one to another. There's so many... We want to be in right relationship. So we need to examine ourselves. It's, It's part of this process, and sanctification is quite a process, but it's part of the process of sanctification. You know, if we lose track, if, if we become not watchful, if we don't pay attention, if we don't continually consider our flesh dead, like the Bible tells us, it doesn't take long for you and I to get back in the snare of living like the world. And there are an awful lot of people who proclaim to be Christians that are living just like the world. And if we are Christians, truly Christians, the Spirit of God lives in us to teach us And help us to be different from the world. We need to continually remember that there is a process we're going through in the sanctification. And it's different than being justified. We have been justified at the cross. Jesus took care of that. You're innocent. Your sins are forgiven. This process of justification, there's going to be continue. Living the, I think it's an expectation. If you read 1 John, evidence that you're a Christian is that you're confessing your sins. So we are supposed to confess our sins. And He will forgive us. Because it's already done. Well, since my notes make no sense, I'm going to just conclude. But I want to encourage us. I want to make two things really clear. Number one, judgment-wise, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior... Our sins are forgiven. We need to get that in our mind and in our heart because what that does is silences the voice of the enemy in so many ways. When he comes at us with these lies about not being good enough, not being worthy, not being loved, all that stuff, all those lies, if we just have it firmly established in our hearts that you know what? I am forgiven. I am no longer a state of being a sinner I was a sinner. I have been saved by grace because of Jesus Christ. Man, that just silences the voice. Now, he may keep trying to whisper it, but you just keep standing on that truth and his power is gone because it's all lies and deceptions. 
All lies and deceptions. So no matter what you hear me say about confessing sin, I am not ever talking about that sin that condemns us. Because that's done with. When I talk about sin now in the life of a believer, it's those transgressions. It's not who we are. It's how we make mistakes as the children of God. And if it helps to differentiate between sin and a transgression, you know, man, we mess up all the time. And hopefully, most of the time, it's not intentional. Intentional sin's a, not a good thing. But most of the, it's just a transgression. But it's still sin. And confess it and move on to our relationship with God. Every single one of us that have been born again, we have been judged and we have been found innocent. Period. No confusion. We still sin, but our relationship with God is intact in terms of sonship or being a daughter. But the intimacy, the communion, the, communion, the joy, the peace is being damaged. Confess it. Get back in the right place as quick as possible. And you know when we do this, God's got this amazing plan. Anybody ever figured that out? He's got this amazing plan. Everything that He wants us to do to show that we love Him, He's asked us to do it because He loves us and knows we'll be blessed. We, we get all confused and think anytime we get instructions or orders or told to do something, that, that old nature, that sin nature just rears up and wants to resist. We need to get rid of that attitude. It's different. God never does anything except to work good in His children. So when He disciplines us, when He's correcting us, sometimes we get a pretty good spanking from the Lord. Some theologies don't believe that. My theology and my experiences would tell me otherwise. Even when He does that, it's because He loves us and wants to get us on that path to more Christ-likeness. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that anything that I said that was confusing would just fall to the ground and do no harm. But Lord, I pray You would just continue to teach us by Your Spirit. God, help us to, help us to understand and help us in our own frailty to know and believe your word that says, as a child of God, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. Lord, I pray that we would become just so good at hearing that lying voice of the enemy and declaring the truth. I am good enough because of Jesus. I am worthy, but only because of Jesus. Your love is unconditional. God, help us to be sensitive of your Holy Spirit when you are examining us and showing us those things that we need to deal with. <clears throat> Lord, I do thank you that your love is everlasting and unconditional. And Lord, I pray that <clears throat> as your children, <clears throat> I pray that as your children, that love would be the love that flows in us and through us and out to those that we come in contact with. Your love can soften the hardest hearts. And Lord, I pray that as we go our separate ways today, Father, we are sensitive to your voice, watching for divine opportunities.
walking with boldness and love, and trusting your Holy Spirit to give us words to speak, that we truly might be going into the world and leading people to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.